Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 334th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by Ahima. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. And I would like to take the opportunity to say a very happy belated birthday to you. Welcome back, and hello, everyone, today. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, this morning, our lead story is about ICD-10 Z codes. It seems there's been some confusion about these new stress codes, even among some physicians. And reporting that lead story this morning is going to be Helen Fink-Samnick. Ellen has written extensively about the Z codes. And there seems to be some confusion about the proposed new E&M codes. Reporting that story will be Grant Wong from Doctors Management. And it's a topic that you first brought to our attention several years ago, and that's the issue of malnutrition, severe protein calorie malnutrition. It's in the crosshairs of CMS and the OIG. Reporting on malnutrition will be Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Dr. Cortazzo is the medical director for CDI and HIM at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Indeed. We have much to report during this broadcast, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk Dead Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD 10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about the 340B drug program and the new JG modifier. Um, it seems like critical access hospitals are specifically in the, in the uh, um, target of uh, Medicare right now. So starting January 1st, all 340B hospitals participating in the 340B drug program were supposed to add a special modifier called a JG modifier. And the result of the modifier would, to tr- would be to trigger a uh, reduction in payment of 28% off of what had previously been, been prescribed by Medicare as, as a payment. This also affects Medicare Advantage since most of the hospitals that participate in the 340B drug program also have contracts with Medicare Advantage plans that utilize the Medicare payment uh, methodology in order to make payments to critical access hospitals. This is kind of a, a piling off for critical access hospitals are looking at new rules that could be very expensive, including rules relating to non-discrimination and infection control. So critical access hospitals are definitely being hit by changes in the 340B drug program. And to add insult to injury, the savings from the reductions in the 340B drug program are considered to be revenue neutral. So the savings that they make in the 340B drug program are going to be spread out to all of the outpatient PPS reimbursement since critical access hospitals receive payment at cost plus 1%. It means that critical access hospitals will see cuts in their 340B drug payments while not receiving any additional reimbursement on their outpatient rates. Um, In other uh, news in terms of national news, the disproportionate share hospital reimbursement for acute care hospitals continues to to fall uh, based on the reduction from the uh, uninsured uh, from uninsured patients that are being covered under the Accountable Care Act. 
So currently, 58% of the pool is, is the amount that is being paid, 42% uh, reimbursement reduction in uh, disproportionate share hospital payments. Um, this is on top of a reduction in state disproportionate share hospital payments. So we can see that hospitals that, that serve a population of lower income patients is seeing uh, significant drops in reimbursement. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters, including False Claims Act, ZPIC audits, and the OIG. It's Tuesday. It's July 31st, 2018, and you're listening to the third week of Ipspalooza, a summer school where you can learn more about the inpatient perspective payment system, the IPPS. You're listening to the 334th edition of Talk in Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Were you previously trained in ICD-10 but notice gaps in your training? Are you seeking to improve your coding skills and knowledge? Or are you having trouble coding advanced cases in ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT? If you answered yes to any of these, we have a workshop for you. AHIMA's Crack the Codes Advanced Coding Workshop walks you through identifying correct codes with actual redacted patient health records. Create your own one- to four-day training schedule by choosing the classification systems that meet your needs and get a thorough review of ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, or CPT. Don't miss AHIMA's highest-rated face-to-face meeting starting December 6th in Las Vegas. Visit ahima.org events to learn more and to register. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Major changes are being proposed in the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. In fact, CMS proposes to change physician evaluation and management, NM coding, with a drastic overhaul. Reporting this developing story is Grant Huang. Good morning, Grant. Welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Thanks, Chuck. This is just a bombshell provision that CMS came out with in the 2019 Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule. Uh, it's just been two weeks since we've seen that rule come out. And it's a proposal that CMS believes will simplify E&M coding and streamline payments, but it's already been criticized for being potentially harmful to patient outcomes and that it would be a potential pay cut for physicians, particularly specialists. Uh, Either way, this would be the most far-reaching and consequential change to E&M coding since CMS established the existing 1995 and 1997 guidelines more than two decades ago. This change would affect most provider types and all physician specialties, and it would easily eclipse in magnitude CMS's last major shakeup to E&M coding in 2011 when it made the decision to stop reimbursing consultation codes and triggered a wave of such decisions among private payers to the point where consult codes today are rarely billable, no matter if it's, you know, a commercial payer or anybody. So the changes that CMS is proposing to E&M coding for 2019, what are they? Essentially, the change seems simple. CMS is saying that clinicians can now choose an outpatient office visit code level based on the most important component, medical decision-making, or total face time spent with the patient. And they would also eliminate the existing requirement for time-based coding that says the visit must be counseling-dominated. So if the proposal goes through as written, 
for all outpatient office visits. That's CPT codes 99201 to 99205 for new patients and CPT codes 99211 to 99215 for established patients. The history and exam essentially will be at the discretion of the physician in terms of what they need to document. For the purposes of supporting the code level, they're really only going to look at medical decision-making and or face time spent with the patient. And that visit doesn't even have to be counseling-dominated. So there would not be a need to summarize any discussion or counseling with the patient uh, or the patient's caretakers or guardians. Now, CMS is not saying that history and exam don't matter. They write in the proposed rule, quote, we expect that practitioners would still conduct clinically relevant and medically necessary elements of history and physical exam and conform to the general principles of medical record documentation in the 1995 and 1997 guidelines. But of course, that's not a requirement anymore. That's now just a suggestion from CMS. So that's one aspect of the change. The other aspect, and possibly even more controversial, is the streamlining, as CMS puts it, or blending of payments. So rather than having a discrete payment rate by CPT code, CMS proposes to reimburse new patient office visits at a single flat rate as long as it's over 99201 or and a single uh, flat rate for established patient visits if it's a level two or higher. And these are going to be uh, significantly lower for the higher level codes than they currently are. So if you combine those two changes, it's going to have a widespread impact that's going to go far beyond just how clinicians document and choose levels. It's going to affect coders. It's going to affect auditors and compliance folks who may see their services trivialized, at least for this aspect of E&M coding. Remember, the inpatient codes are not affected by this change or would not be affected by this change. You're going to see auditors potentially just seeing the work that they do on the outpatient E&M side as being less critical for compliance purposes because now code levels essentially won't affect payment. So it will really be fascinating to see whether CMS is prepared to rock everyone's world starting January 1st, 2019. Thank you, Grant. I am sure we are going to have more discussion of this at the end because I have a bunch of questions I'd like to ask you. That was Grant Wong. Grant is the Director of Content for Doctors Management. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Grant. And you can read Grant's reporting on the E&M proposed code changes in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Our Tuesday focus is malnutrition, specifically severe protein calorie malnutrition. It's a subject in the crosshairs of CMS and the OIG. And reporting our Tuesday focus is Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Good morning, Dr. Cortazzo. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Chuck, and thanks for having me. The diagnosis of severe protein calorie malnutrition is under high scrutiny from CMS and the OIG. Today, I'd like to explore the reasons why severe protein calorie malnutrition is a target, what criteria are being used in these audits, and what documentation is required to ensure physicians and hospitals receive compensation and credit for the conditions they treat. So why is this a targeted diagnosis? In addition to the financial impact, it has far-reaching implications for many CMS quality metrics. For example, severe protein calorie malnutrition is a diagnosis that can be used for risk adjustment for several of the CMS quality programs, including mortality and re-emission penalties, as well as some of the patient safety indicators. 
even if there's not an upfront financial impact from the diagnosis of severe protein calorie malnutrition, it still may have financial implications for value-based purchasing on the back end. From CMS's perspective, they want to ensure that it's coded appropriately. Now that we know why these diagnoses are being pursued by CMS, what criteria are government agencies using for the auditing of these conditions? The short answer is that hospitals who've been subjected to these audits feel that clear criteria have not been well delineated for them. In a presentation from Novitas Solutions in June of 2018, they have referenced criteria from both the Merck Manual and Aspen Criteria. The Merck Manual is not a peer-reviewed medical publication, nor are there any cited medical literature references that support the criteria in the publication. Many clinicians do not feel these criteria are supported by current standards in the medical literature. Novitas did state, however, that Aspen Criteria is considered, but should be supported by clinical documentation. Recently, the University of Wisconsin was fined $2.4 million for overpayments on malnutrition diagnoses. The University of Wisconsin believes that the use of the diagnosis code for severe malnutrition in each of the claims met the definition of a secondary diagnosis code and that there was adequate documentation to support the assignment of the codes. They also stated that the guidance used for the review was vague and that the OIG did not specify any standard for the hospital to use in diagnosing severe malnutrition. The University of Wisconsin's concerns seem to be echoed by many hospitals who are undergoing CMS audits for this particular diagnosis. Given some of the confusion surrounding the criteria for the diagnosis, what is the best strategy to capture it? Efforts should be both internal and external to your hospital. Internal efforts include engaging your nutrition leadership team, CDI and coding team, your denials department, compliance, and a physician champion to devise the best strategy to ensure that accurate and consistent documentation is present throughout the chart. It's also important to have clear system-wide definition of these diagnoses that are supported by the medical literature. Most hospitals currently use Aspen criteria. The next step is to ensure the documentation supports the criteria you establish. It's helpful for providers to document physical descriptors of the patient, such as having fat or muscle loss, what treatments they are receiving for malnutrition, and how the diagnosis may affect their medical condition. External efforts should focus upon gathering information that can enhance your internal processes. It is crucial to keep abreast of the latest updates from CMS, OIG audit reports, and information sharing from other hospitals on probe and educate results. I wish I could provide clear and concise criteria, but until that becomes available, I recommend engaging experts at your hospital to have the most comprehensive approach to this issue. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Megan. I actually did not even know that Merck was not peer-reviewed. That was a surprise to me. That was Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Dr. Cortazzo is the medical director for CDI and HIM at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Thanks, Erica, and thank you so very much, Dr. Cortazzo. And here's a program note. Malnutrition, of course, continues to be a very common audit trigger, and you can learn how to document and code malnutrition accurately. All you need to do is download the malnutrition webcast. It's there on our website at icd10monitor.com.
Our lead story this morning is about the ICD-10 Z codes. It seems there's some confusion about these new stress codes. Even some physicians seem to be confused. Reporting this developing story is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan has written extensively about the Z codes. So, Alan, why are these uh, Z codes confusing to so many people? Chuck, everyone is so stressed out about these stress codes. Um, It was interesting. You and I spoke recently, and several recent tweets came to mind when you asked me to be part of this broadcast. They reinforced one glaring fact. The workforce, every single member of this workforce, especially physicians, still requires guidance on both documentation and use of the ICD-10Z stress codes. First up, the physician tweet I liked about the power of all team members to use non-clinical documentation for the new codes. Quote, social workers and case managers should also document these. Social determinants of health can be coded from non-physician documentation, exclamation mark. Next came the physician comment to the prior tweet that infuriated me. Quote, only MDs have the right, underlined, to code. The training of social workers is limited and does not include this aspect. Finally, the physician comment to the comment that empowered me. Quote, what? They can't identify stress from being separated from a parent and document that? Of course they can. Several exclamation marks. That last tweet, by the way, was from my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ron Hirsch, and right, he was. Since February 18th, 2018, revisions from the American Hospital Association allow for greater utilization, documentation of, and reimbursement for the social determinants of health. Talk 10 Tuesday and Monday Monitor have reported often on this fact, with a separate webcast scheduled for September 20th that will focus on direct application and implementation of the Z codes. For today's time together, here is what you need to know. The Z codes have been around for years, but grossly underutilized with the exception of hospitalizations for mental health and substance use. The reliance on physicians to solely provide the needed documentation was not happening. Truth be told, the bulk of assessment on the social and environmental conditions that mark the social determinants comes from documentation by non-physician providers, case managers, discharge planners, social workers, nurses, and other members of the interprofessional care team. February 18, 2018 became the latest date to change the course of healthcare history, allowing reporting of the codes from condition Z55 to Z65 based on information documented by all clinicians, and I'm underlining and bolding, all clinicians involved in the care of the patient. The AHA called for massive education by hospitals and health systems of the interprofessional workforce who collect and document data on the social determinants, including physicians, non-physician healthcare providers, and coding professionals. Using these codes allows all stakeholders to better track patient needs and identify solutions to improve the health of patients and their populations. The AHA has a two-page resource on their website, Coding the Social Determinants of Health. It is also included in the handouts for today's broadcast. 
The document is comprehensive and explains the changes and provides the necessary primary Z codes plus the scope of each code. There are additional resources that live on the ICD-10data.com website as well. Clinical care impacts a patient's status only 10% of the time. The evidence is clear to that end. Higher percentages are attributed to social and behavioral factors, 20% and 40% respectively. No wonder $1.7 trillion accounts for 5% of the population, mostly due to the social determinants. Now, all professionals juggle chronic updates, regulations, and requirements, trying not to drop any of these balls. Our interprofessional culture has greatly shifted. Achieving quality care that is patient-centric and fiscally sound mandates the workforce talk to each other as opposed to at each other. With the swift and fluid changes faced in our healthcare vortex, there is one underlying theme. We are all in this vortex together, and we'll continue to learn together as we go, but only if we allow ourselves to do so. So, to the physician who challenged my knowledge of the Zico documentation requirements, take note of my quote, social workers, case managers, Nurses, plus all members of the clinical interprofessional team, should document their objective assessment of patients, including when psychosocial, social, and behavioral factors have the potential to obstruct and impede care. This documentation is a must to validate use of the Z codes as well as financial sustainability for any organization. As Kenneth Blanchard says, None of us is as smart as all of us. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Ellen. The nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health, Ellen Fink-Samnick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And, Ellen, thank you very much uh, for an excellent report, and you can read more about the social determinants of health and the new Z codes at ICD10Monitor.com. You know, we've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk 10 Tuesday. So, uh, Erica, I think you have some questions for Grant about the uh, E&M codes being proposed. I do. Um, I'm actually supportive of making medical decision-making one of the uh, components that you need to use for E&M, but I am not sure that I believe that this is really um, patients over paperwork, I think that this is government over paperwork. Uh, I think that we're going to see that uh, the providers uh, in the offices are not going to come out ahead with the blended rate. Uh, And I was wondering um, if you had uh, a recommendation for what people might say in their comments in the proposed rule that you think might get CMS's attention. I should start by saying CMS definitely, you can tell based on how they write the proposals, that they do want a lot of feedback, uh, and they are aware of just how uh, unprecedented and uh, impactful the proposal is. Uh, I would say as far as what comments to submit, it, it will depend chiefly on what your primary concerns are. If the concern is about patient outcomes uh, due to the potential for underdocumenting, then I think that should be emphasized, that if you stop mandating the history and exam uh, for certain levels of service, 
then uh, the concern is, well, maybe physicians will document much less than they should, potentially less than would be clinically uh, helpful to other physicians who have to read these notes and uh, provide uh, their care over the entire maybe, care continuum. Or maybe they'll stop doing them, <laughs> which is even even scarier that the you know the quality of the care may actually um, go down. If you're on the patient outcome side, I think that would be a strong argument to bring to CMS as part of the the public comments. And I think if you are a physician, particularly a specialist, you might uh, take issue with the payment changes and say. Well, you know, the majority of my uh, E&M codes are level four, level five codes, the highest level codes in the outpatient setting. And even with, you know, an add-on code, because what CMS is proposing to do to offset some of the payment reductions uh, by having a, a single blended rate is to have add-on codes for specialists. That's still not going to close the gap between where the new level five, even level four codes would be and where they are currently. And so you might say, I'm no longer getting reimbursed appropriately for the level of care that I provide. And that's going to have all kinds of negative consequences uh, down the road as far as, you know, what decisions physicians make um, uh, about their careers. Um, so that's obviously another aspect of it. And I, I think the, the third type of argument that, that could be brought to CMS is just for compliance purposes, you know, to completely uh, essentially trivialize the role of auditors, coders, educators by making it no longer relevant, the payment and the code level. There's, there's essentially no correlation there. Uh, what's going to happen to compliance? What's going to happen to you know all the oversight and resources that are currently spent on physician education and making sure that the code levels actually mean something? We have already, certainly in my industry, dealt for a long time with physicians who say things like, oh, I just bill a level three all the time because I don't want to get dinged for going too high. Uh, it's just simple. I just pick one code. Well, now you're kind of giving every physician that incentive to, to think that way. Um, and I, I think just limiting you know, it to a suggestion from CMS, they still pick the most appropriate code level and still put forth all that thought when they no longer have the financial or compliance incentive to do so. It's not a, a good design. So that's a, that's a third argument that could be brought from another group of stakeholders. So I hope that answers the question. I, I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. I, I do, and I think it's a really good idea. I think that it's very important that we weigh in on proposed rules. You know, like, like I said, I, I think the only valuable part about this is I think that you can document anybody at a, at a level 5 H&P but your medical decision-making is really what determines what level of service you're supposed to get. And I, I, right. I, I guess it could just be that I'm accustomed to it, but I think that it's a good idea to have different levels of service, and ha I think doctors should be paid, paid appropriately. And one last Talk thing I'd point out is that even if, it's even if it goes in as written, uh, it's only going to affect those outpatient office visit codes. So you're going to have inpatient codes the same way as they are now, and for however long this system lasts, it's going to have kind of a bifurcated uh, world of E&M coding where the physicians can't just completely throw away history and exam because as long as they see, you know, inpatients, they're going to have to continue to abide by the current rules on that side. Yeah, that makes doctors really crazy when they have to do it one way in this setting and one way in that setting. It makes it's easier when it's done this, you know, similar ways in all the settings. Absolutely. Yeah. Chuck? 
That's going to be a wrap for our 334th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our guests today, Grant Huang, Tim Powell, Dr. Megan Curtazzo, Alan Fink-Samnick, and of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. And I hope you're going to join us today at 1.30 for an important webcast on how to code and document the top U.S. chronic editions. That features Rhonda Bocholt. And speaking of Rhonda Bocholt, Rhonda's going to be on Talk 10 Tuesday next Tuesday when she reports on, believe it or not, ICD-11. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.